welcome to the Media Law Podcast Newscast. Colette, Tom and Paul here to discuss the latest media law headlines. We have the return of Raab and with him the Bill of Rights Bill. Another newscast prophecy comes true. Updates on the libel trials of Sir James Dyson and Nick Kyrgios and Musk's takeover of Twitter. But first, I want to talk about the arrest of LBC journalist Charlotte Lynch on the 8th of November 2022. Lynch became the third journalist in just two days to be arrested by Hertfordshire's constabulary while covering the Just Stop Oil protests. Her arrest is thought to be the eighth of a journalist covering the actions by Just Stop Oil this year. These arrests have sparked widespread criticism as a threat to press freedom and freedom of expression, including comment from the Prime Minister Rishi Sunak's chief spokesperson, who said it's vital that journalists are able to do their job freely without restriction. This has prompted the Chief Constable of Hertfordshire Constabulary to promise an investigation into the arrests of journalists covering climate protests. Obviously, there's a lot of free speech issues here, and I think that's going to be a reoccurring theme for much of the things that we want to talk about in today's episode. Um, who'd like to start? Yes, this this is uh, this is troubling um, from a but from a free speech perspective, I'm I'm um, slightly concerned by the direction of the narrative. You know, when the protesters are arrested, well, they're just they're just troublemakers. You know, even Keir Starmer, who's gone so far down in my estimation. But even Keir Starmer, um, uh, he's, he's, the narrative that he's using is around this idea of these uh, protesters uh, being troublemakers, being selfish. You know, there's a there's a rhetoric here that is uh, painful to listen to. It's borrowed. It entirely misses the point. Uh, these protesters are exercising freedom of speech. Now, it might not be a freedom of speech that's recognised by law, but it's freedom of speech. It is a protest against this government uh, and and the press industry not taking climate change seriously enough and not acting decisively enough. It's all very well for Keir Starmer to say, well, don't glue yourself to the floor. But what more needs to be done before politicians will take uh, these issues seriously? Now, when someone else, a different person gets arrested for ostensibly voicing an opinion uh, in this case by by uh, showcasing what the um uh, protesters are trying to do in order to get their message across suddenly rishi sunak has a moment of clarity when he recognizes this is to do with freedom of speech the whole thing is to do with freedom of speech i'm deeply troubled by this idea that there's one group of people who are privileged because they have a press card and their voice matters, and they shouldn't be stopped from doing their job. And these protesters aren't legitimate, aren't authentic voices, uh, because they what they don't have a press card, what they're not acting, they don't do this as part of their job. So, yes, it's abhorrent that journalists have been arrested, but the whole thing is abhorrent, and we need to be clear, I think, in in where we're drawing this fine line between free speech on the one hand and press freedom on the other. We're going to talk at some point, uh, probably quite shortly, about the Bill of Rights bill that Dominic Raab was promoting when he was Deputy Prime Minister, before he was removed from being Deputy Prime Minister, but of course is now back as Deputy Prime Minister um, and Justice Secretary. Um, In that bill and his defence of its 
draft provisions. He talked about the need to strengthen free speech and also the need to clamp down on disruptive protest. And we said at the time, this was several months ago, uh, here on the podcast, that these two things were fundamentally incompatible. The the, uh, Bill of Rights bill was incapable of both protecting free speech and clamping down on political protest because political protest is a key part of free speech. And for that reason, I agree with everything that Paul has said. This really serves to highlight that particular incoherence at the heart of what is clearly government policy and is finding its way into policing policy. A desire to clamp down on protests. Just the other day, and I tried very hard not to be triggered by this, but I'm failing. Just the other day, the uh, newly returned Home Secretary, Suella Breverman, labelled protesters um, uh, from Just Stop Oil uh, and other similar protest movements, extremists. One of the terms she used was to call them extremists. So they were intent on causing damage to property. Well, extremists who cause damage to property meet the legal definition of terrorism. Mm. But these people are not terrorists. Gluing one's face to the floor does not make you a terrorist. We know in this country what terrorism looks like. Uh, We have seen it over the course of uh, a number of decades because there have been the the troubles in Northern Ireland. And then, of course, the UK was subject to a number of attacks um, by uh, extremists, genuine extremists in the aftermath of uh, the war in Iraq and Afghanistan. And we have seen recently a number of terrorist attacks perpetrated by middle-aged white men um, of an extreme right-wing ideology. Most recently, of course, the attack uh, at uh, the firebombing attack at the Manston Immigration Centre in Kent, which I note the Home Secretary has still not labelled an act of terrorism or extremism, um, yet... She's happy to label uh, these you know, protesters from Just Stop Oil who uh, barricade themselves onto uh, roadways for an hour or two uh, extremists. Now, um, do I think that what she says make it, makes a difference? It doesn't make a big difference in law, but uh, she is expressly trying to influence policing policy. She was speaking to police officers when she used this terminology the other day. She is encouraging them to uh, arrest more people at these protests. The uh, changing to uh, the public order legislation that that is around the Policing Act, um, which we also talked about uh, earlier in the year in this podcast, has made it easier for the police to do more things to protesters, including preemptive arrests, much more surveillance. And this is hardening the uh, attitude of the police to protesters and leading them to do things like just arrest everybody who's there. And what's happened? Journalists have been caught up in that. Is it awful that journalists have been caught up in it? Yes. But at least what it's doing is drawing attention to the plight that anyone who wishes to protest against the policies of this government now faces, which is it's very difficult to engage in any form of effective direct action protest without being liable to arrest and detention for a number of hours uh, at a minimum 
I mean, the journalists who've been detained this week have been detained for some of them well over 12 hours, um, mm. despite having all their press credentials on them and explaining pre-arrest that they were uh, accredited journalists um, who should not be uh, arrested. It is good that the uh, Chief Constable of Harbutshire has promised an investigation. Uh, I hope it's a very swift investigation because it's not a terribly difficult one to do. Should these individuals have been arrested once they got their press cards out? Answer, no. End of. And then we could move on to what Paul, what rightly says is the big issue here, uh, which is that everyone ought to have a right to engage in political protest without being subject to uh, this sort of treatment. Uh, not just the press uh, it should be entitled it's not just that the press should be entitled to cover it yeah uh, i i'm also deeply troubled by the um uh, hertfordshire constabulary also referring to something called legitimate media uh they you know they they um their their concern is protesters masquerading as members of the press i understand that again i go back to my earlier point all of this is a free speech matter, not just the treatment of this this privileged class of individuals who call themselves the press. But that language is even more troubling. Sorry, what is legitimate media? Because I suspect what he has in mind is the right wing press. Well, what what he has in mind is traditional journalism. I'm I'm taking a shortcut here. Traditional journalism, established journalism, legacy journalism the overwhelming majority of which is right-wing press, who are quite happy to denounce uh, protesters as terrorists without even thinking twice and to create the echo chamber in which they and Sweller Braverman and disturbed people who think the same way will label protesters as terrorists and extremists. The same way that these people won't label the murderer of Joe Cox, the murderer of Amos, as terrorists, even though on any analysis, they are. So this whole issue around uh, these protests is is good uh, that we are talking about these issues, but speaks to our disturbingly poor understanding of what free speech is actually about the narrow conception of free speech is something that comes through with dominic Rubb's uh bill of rights bill which you've already alluded to tom so it's a nice place to segue into now um dominic Rubb has returned as justice secretary following rishi sunak's arrival at number 10 and just last weekend, the first weekend of November, Rob told ITV News that the bill, which had been shelved by Liz Truss when she became Prime Minister in September, would uh, return to Parliament in the next coming weeks. It's currently awaiting its second reading at the House of Commons and um, would, and I quote, re-inject a healthy dose of common sense to the system and end abuse of our laws. Obviously, we've already spoken about the uh, misunderstanding of freedom of expression that the bill has and reflects. Is there anything that we want to add? Well, I, I just think it's terribly depressing. I mean, uh, not least um, uh, that uh, I've clearly spoken far too soon when uh, in our last podcast, which uh, bizarrely was under a completely different government, 
um, which we seem to be getting through at an extremely rapid pace. I mean, we've got more governments than we have podcasts in a month. We've got issues. Um, I said at the time when the bill had been shelved, good riddance to bad rubbish. I still think it's bad rubbish, and I'm much dismayed that uh, it's back. Um, I get very anxious when I hear conservatives talk about common sense because I don't tend to think that they mean common sense in the in the sense of an idea that is common to everyone or indeed to the majority. Um, I, what they tend to have in mind are uh, quite right-leaning ideas about how society should be organized and who should have rights and who should be able to speak and who should be arrested. Um, and so it, 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 it does really worry me that this is back. Um, it remains to be seen exactly what form it comes back in or what's, what form it gets kicked around into um, in uh, committee stage, both in the House of Commons and in the House of Lords, where I suspect the most amount of uh, change will take place. Um, but we're going to have to keep an eye on it again, which is just a very depressing thought. Yeah, the, I mean the the other problem, of course, is the is the rhetoric. When when Dominic uh, Raab talks about free speech, he's not talking about it from a position of enlightenment. He's not someone who's read or is classically trained on the finer points of free speech, either as a legal uh, right or a political ideal. He's talking about free speech as some sort of free legal intuition. And uh, when he talks about common sense, he's really talking about uh, what uh, he envisages his type of people would think free speech means. And I find it incredibly frustrating that there are people out there, some of which appears on, on TV and are asked for their opinions, but the people out there that seem to think that they have this deep understanding of what free speech means and its its limits when they don't have the first clue. And the Bill of Rights, a Bill of Rights, a Bill of Rights, of Bill of Rights, clearly demonstrates that this is a government that has no idea about rights or bills or naming of bills. Um, and I just quite happy to make this as up as they go along because it feeds into their toxic rhetoric which is about as far as i can tell and it's fairly transparent as far as i can tell sort of reinforcing norms of corporate greed that keep uh, the working class down and uh, keep those with money uh, in power and and uh, surrounding power and for me this bill of rights takes us back to not just pre-enlightenment times, it takes us all the way back to the sort of Magna Carta. What we really are creating here is a political establishment, a political institution that suits the barons, except in this version, the barons are what? Oil interests, fossil fuel interests, the mega rich. I mean, this is a government that's that's de-enfranchising the people covertly and getting away with it and when people try and protest in extreme ways which is the only way in which to uh, get attention to what's actually going on they're going to be arrested because this bill allows for that having said that it's all very depressing let me try and find some light at the end of the tunnel 
Um, and, and, and I think there is some light here. Um, it's quite clear that um, the new, new government, and particularly figures like Braverman and Raab, are intent on trying to stoke culture wars, uh, particularly with those uh, who lean to the left on social issues and who are easily triggered whenever Suella Braverman stands up and calls somebody extremist who isn't a remotely an extremist, whenever she blathers on about the tofu-eating wokarati. Um, and, and we are very easily triggered by that, some of those. But the reason we are is uh, is, is obviously that we, we, we take offence at um, these sorts of labelings and we're worried about their implications. But the whole intent here is to distract um, f- the people of this country from the dire economic situation that the government has wrought uh, and which it has been uh, cultivating over the last 12 years. So it is the dead cat that gets thrown onto the table to distract us. And what I find comforting about that thought is that ultimately, no matter how much distraction is put out there on these sorts of cultural issues, no government can halt the march of progress in society. We are becoming a more liberal society. We are becoming more aware of the importance of the climate and of tackling the climate emergency. And ultimately, protesters like those from Just Stop Oil are succeeding in raising awareness, which is seeping into the public consciousness. Um, And it doesn't matter that there are a number of climate deniers on the conservative benches. The electorate is not going to stand for climate denial. And we've seen that in recent manifestos um, for uh, elected uh, office in this country. Um, campaigns are now being fought on that issue. And the same is happening on other social issues. So we think about the rights of the LGBTQ plus community very much coming under fire, the trans community in particular coming under fire from uh, the culture warriors in the Conservative Party. But the march of progress, I think, is inevitable. Society will go forward. It may be delayed for a while, but things are going to uh, improve. That's 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 my view. Now, I speak as a, a, a cisgendered male, and my perspective on this is imperfect, but it looks to me as if things are improving. I, I wish more. I wish I shared your your um, faith, uh, your your belief, Tom. I was just I mean, trying think, to be positive. Paul. Yeah, well, I, well, uh, um, I'll try and say positive. Uh, I can't. Um, that didn't last long. Um, I mean, I I, w- I would say that. You know, when, whenever Suella Braverman opens her mouth, the reason I take offence is I just am staggered, literally staggered, by the fact that she's actually there. How is someone like Suella Braverman? It's not just her, but how are these individuals in cabinet actually there? What does it say about our dem- democracy, our public institutions, that people like that? with all the experiences that Europe has had, with all of the wars it's fought, particularly wars against fascism, to now have people like that representing us and in power. I mean, my concern is that actually I don't see progress. I think we've gone backwards. And when I see people saying, well, this is 2022, I sort of think, so? 
how can this happen in 2022? Well, the same reason it could happen in 1932, 1937. I want to move on from one particular group of people who think they know about free speech but have no idea to another. Are you referring uh, to us, though? Yeah. (laughs) I thought it was a good segue. Yeah. (laughs) To uh, another. Since the last newscast, Elon Musk has completed his $44 billion takeover of Twitter. Musk, the self-styled free speech absolutist, has been a longtime critic of Twitter's management and moderation policies. On completion of the deal, he tweeted, the bird is freed. This announcement came after months of legal wrangling and an attempt by Musk to withdraw from the deal. Musk has said that there will be no change to the platform's content moderation policy yet, but there have been a number of suggestions by Musk as to the platform's future, including a suggestion that the platform could split into strands where users can stage online rows. Somewhat ironically, the free speech defender has also suggested charging users for the blue tick verification status. We've spoken a lot about content moderation on the podcast before, in particular, Twitter is a private company and um, it's right to set its own policies. I want to start, though, by asking for an explanation as to why free speech absolutism might be problematic and then go on to a discussion about whether more regulation of online platforms uh, maybe is necessary as there is or should be in the press. Yes. So, um, okay. So, so we, we hear it said um, more often than not that, um, and Elon Musk himself has said that interferences with speech, uh, online speech through social media uh, like Twitter uh, is um, an issue of free speech. And so he is a self-proclaimed free speech absolutist uh, who believes that there should be no interferences with speech, which is somewhat ironic then that the, one of the first acts that he performed as the as the owner of Twitter uh, was to complain about parody accounts and to uh, make a, a statement that going forward, all parody accounts must clearly be labelled as parody uh, otherwise, uh, there will be uh, consequences. Now, interestingly, uh, there was um, there is a footnote to this that relates to the UK experience because the Daily Mail got caught out just a matter of weeks ago when it cited uh, what it thought was a former MP for Dorset East, Sir Michael Take MP. Sir Michael Take, Michael Take, Mickey Take. So um, the Daily Mail, unfortunately, uh, quoted him uh, as he defended the conservative policy of allowing our beaches to be polluted uh, with sewage. Uh, Mickey, Mickey Take, to his friends, uh, is not a real person. That's a fictitious account, obviously. Uh, The Daily Mail got suckered into it. Now, um, it's all very well for for Elon Musk and other commentators to say uh, interferences with uh, speech online raise serious matters of free speech principle. Um, But there is an immediate hurdle that one has to overcome if one is to make a claim that uh, interferences with Twitter speech are a matter of free speech, uh, which is to explain why. 
Now, too often commentators jump straight to the content and they'll say things like, well, the content is political and therefore. Um, there is a structural question that needs to be answered first, and that is why a private company should respect constitutionally mandated rights and rights claims. Uh, the political ideal that we talk about as free speech that has legal status in this country as Article 10 of the European Convention on Human Rights uh, in an America and in America as the First Amendment of the Constitution. Why should Elon Musk honour anyone's free speech rights when that right, uh, the, for any rights holder, uh, has a claim against the body that has the duty to provide them with that right, and that is the state or an emanation of the state. So unless we're going to say that Twitter is an emanation of the state, which is not easily done, then we need to explain why Twitter or any other social, uh, social media company should owe anyone a duty to allow them to speak. Uh, that often isn't done. That analysis, just as you can tell from that little segue, is quite complicated, it's quite technical, and is a bit boring, I suppose. The short answer is, it's not. It's not a free speech matter. Uh, you've no more uh, a right to uh, exercise your Article 10 uh, rights on Twitter than you would have to bang on my door, demand to come in my house, uh, so that you can yell to the crowds that gather outside my house from my bedroom window because you think that offers an acoustical advantage. Tom, perhaps you could provide uh, the other side. I know that there was an article on Inform just this week speaking about the problems of free speech absolutism. So while there may not be a duty on Twitter to uphold free speech, there is an issue with the absolute free speech that Musk advocates for. Uh, could you lay out for listeners what those problems are? Well, I think the biggest problem that we're facing here with Musk is that he's not a free speech absolutist. Um, there are reports, you know, he says he's a free speech absolutist, and then he goes and gives interviews in which he makes it plain that he thinks there should be limits on free speech and actually quite significant limits on it. Um, and he, he talks about uh, how uh, on Twitter he would rather see people given timeouts for bad behavior rather than lifetime bans. Well, okay, well, that's still a limit on free speech. is a different kind of limit, but it's still there. We've seen, as Paul said, his intolerance of uh, parody accounts. Um, and we've seen, uh, anecdotally, his reaction to um, uh, what his own moderation team have been doing. He puts a tweet out uh, uh, the other week which referenced something that looked very much like a conspiracy theory. His, his Twitter's own moderation team flagged it as potentially inaccurate and included links to some uh, reputable journalistic sources that provided counterbalancing information. And within 24 hours, he fired the content moderation team. Um, you know, This is a team that was putting out information relevant to, uh, uh, to to readers and readers' rights to know the whole story, which is part and parcel of a free speech right, and Musk clearly couldn't tolerate that. 
Um, he's not a free speech absolutist. He's a Musk speech absolutist. He, he wants to be able to say what he wants to say. He wants people who agree with him to be able to say what they want to say. And he says uh, sometimes that nothing should be shut down. But then you hear his interviews, he's, it's quite clear that he thinks certain things should be shut down. Uh, I think it's quite clear that he thinks that immediate incitements to violence should result in some sort of punishment on Twitter, but that people simply saying vile things should not. Um, well, there's still limits there on free speech. So, um, I mean, that's before we get into the, you know, the, the big questions of well, what counts as speech anyway, and is hate speech really speech? Is it the sort of speech that can be protected? So on and so forth. I mean, Musk does seem to think that it, that, 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 that it can be in, in certain circumstances should be. Um, uh, but, but, but obviously he thinks that there, there should be limits. So this whole free speech absolutism argument, I think, gets blown out of proportion. The issue is not does he believe in limits? The issue is what limits does he think there should be and whose interests do they benefit? And that's what we are waiting to see, uh, to see how it pans out. Um, it will take us, I suspect, minimally weeks to see whose interests end up being put at the forefront of the new Twitter's new policies and whose who's do not. And there is a... Um... Uh, a dimension here, a dynamic that will impact on democracy uh, if it becomes a larger trend. I mean, there have been reports of um, an account that was suspended suddenly of uh, someone who was sitting for election uh, and that account being suspended uh, moments before or, or immediately before the, the vote. Um. So you can imagine that as more politicians and uh, prospective politicians uh, take to platforms like Twitter uh, to engage with society, to, to use that as a medium by which to disseminate their message, um, if their accounts are... Well, let's take an extreme example. If, if, for example, in this country we're about to hold a vote, a general election... I mean, God knows when that will ever take place, whether the Tories will allow it. But let's say a general election takes place and Twitter suddenly suspends all the Labour MP uh, accounts before the election. That causes us a problem as a democracy. Now, whether we can pin that to the neat label of uh, free speech and free speech rights is a different matter. But clearly that is a problem that would seem to call for a solution. Um, that is something that I think Musk now has uh, a control over, but is it any different to the problem that we've long had, especially in America, of networks um, having specific political affiliations? You know, in America, they don't have due impartiality for their networks in the way that we do. Um, they, they have tried... But, but the experiment they previously had failed and failed miserably. Um, we, we will see. Just finally, though, in light of that democratic power that you've noted, Paul, um, do you think then there is more of a role for external regulation, given what we're seeing with Musk and the, the kind of platform he now literally has, to um, control a huge portion of 
the way society communicates things like the online harms bill and stuff like that what they're trying to achieve is there do we do we think that there's more of a role for that i think i think the difficulty though uh, with with regulation i mean first of all it's it's how one would justify regulation as a matter of principle the basis of regulation because um if it if regulation amounts to sort of content regulation well americans are um typically quite squeamish about about content regulation they they feel they believe strongly in content neutrality um uh the other one is a practical one how it's actually achieved now um what something like the online safety bill is trying to do uh in principle is um safeguard adults and children from experiencing particularly shocking material that would amount to a harm um almost a sort of psychological harm although not quite a psychological harm um so that is a sort of consumer type reason to regulate um rather than a democratic uh, reason to to regulate and i think i think the difficulty for those that want to regulate um uh, twitter or any other social media platform for the purposes of enhancing pluralism in our communications is just how to deal with a, a very problematic but basic issue that us lawyers recognize easily enough which is causation uh, if we have audiences that have these strange beliefs uh, from the QAnon conspiracy theory where all, all the way to the more moderate but still troubling uh, intuitive belief that you speak to certain individuals parents for example and they'll say things like well I don't like Keir Starmer and you probe them and you say, why? Turns out there's no there's no reason for that. There's just a sort of feeling, well, I don't like him. So so sort of policing speech on the basis of um, democracy so that we all reach these informed uh, decisions is a huge problem, practically and as a matter of principle. I think we need to move away from free speech just so that we can cover the two defamation issues that uh, I want to get to in this episode. So let's stay in America. This um, we have a, a another media law podcast newscast prophecy coming true from the last newscast, where Tom predicted uh, that Neiman may want to bring a claim against uh, chess world champion Magnus Carlsen, as well as various online chess platforms and their executive directors, as well as uh, the American grandmaster Nakamura, for slander and libel. Uh, This claim arises out of what started as an indirect insinuation that Neiman had cheated via the use of a Jose Mourinho gif in a tweet published by Carlson after their infamous match where Neiman beat him. Carlson then came out and openly accused Neiman of cheating, and I think that's what is the, the base of this particular claim. Neiman, who's 19, claimed that the defendants are colluding to blacklist him from the professional chess world. He waited until we didn't just have the ambiguous tweet from Carlson, but until Carlson came out and expressly said, I believe Neiman to be a cheater. Um, In Magnus's statement that he released, 
he said that he thought that Neiman uh, had cheated on a number of occasions and more than he admitted to. Neiman has admitted to some cheating, two incidents of cheating, two different points in his career, both whilst uh, a child. He has, has yet to come out and say explicitly that he thinks Neiman cheated in the Sinkfield Cup, but he said he thought that, that was suspicious, that his behaviour during the tournament was suspicious. Um, and having waited for Carlson to come out and say that explicitly, Neiman has now brought his libel claim against Carlson. And yes, as you rightly say, he's also joined a number of other defendants, including um, the uh, former world uh, championship contender, um, so former world uh, number two in classical chess, Hikaru Nakamura, American player. Uh, and chess.com, which is the largest of the chess websites and which has banned Neiman from its events and has released a report in which it explains why and uh, produces some statistical analysis to suggest that it thinks that uh, Neiman has done more cheating than he's admitted to. It will be, from my perspective, fascinating to see this one play out and see how far it gets and uh, who manages to persuade a jury of what, because Neiman is, of course, a public figure. And thus the New York Times and Sullivan rule will require him, prima facie, to show actual malice on the part of all of the defendants, that is, knowing falsity or reckless disregard for the truth. Why would you bring a claim knowing that you're going to have to demonstrate actual malice in these circumstances? I, I, I'm struggling to understand the logic behind it. All right, coming back to the UK, just to briefly mention that on the... Oh, don't 30- bring us back to the UK. I don't want to go back to the UK. I want to stay over here. You want to stay in America? Maybe not America. I'm going north. I'm going to Canada. Yeah, sensible. Um, on the 31st of October 2022, the High Court dismissed the libel claim brought by Sir James Dyson against Channel 4 over allegations of exploitation of workers at one of his suppliers' factories. Dyson sued Channel 4 and ITN over a documentary aired on the 10th of February 2022, which reported on legal action brought by several workers at a plant in Malaysia. Dyson claimed the broadcast falsely said that he he and his two companies, Dyson Technology and Dyson Limited, were complicit in systematic abuse and exploitation of the workers. Mr. Justice Nicklin disagreed, ruling that the report was not defamatory of Dyson because the allegations referred to none of the three parties. Finally, uh, just to mention that the Australian tennis player Nick Kyrgios has settled with a the fan he accused of being drunk out of her mind during the men's single final at this year's Wimbledon, sending her an apology and donating the compensation and donating the compensation to her chosen charity. So uh, we won't get to see whether the um, qualified privilege defence plays out. Yeah, that was um, a surprise. I mean, he uh, Kyrgios has uh, made a donation of I think twenty thousand pounds to Great Ormond Street hospital and um i will always support people making donations to great ormond street hospital that's an excellent idea um but i i I cannot for the life of me believe that uh, anyone advised him that he was uh legally required to do so um we spoke last time about this case and about how as far as i can see this is a classic instance of qualified privilege and he absolutely 
um, had a rock solid defense. And, and, and I'm getting my information from the reports that I've seen. And maybe the uh, legal teams advising him behind the scenes have a different view of what has happened because there are facts that they are aware of which have not appeared in the media reports. Entirely possible. So I'm offering no criticism at all of the advice that he's received. But from what I can see, from what has been reported, I don't understand his actions from a legal perspective. Notwithstanding that, donations to Great Ormond Street, excellent idea. And if you've got some spare money, definitely do it. On that positive note, let's uh, round up today's newscast. Thank you very much, Tom and Paul, for your wonderful insights. Thanks, Colette. Thanks, Colette. As ever, follow us on social media at Media Law Podcast, and we will be back with more newscasts in the weeks to come. Thank you very much. Bye.